Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa Tabiso Luhoko and Figelelingwati In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa South Africa's opposition push for motion of no confidence in President Jacob Zuma US envoy defends her country's posture at the United Nations and UN Food Agency launches plan to end hunger in Zimbabwe. In economics news, Standard & Poor's downgrade South Africa to junk status and in sports news, South Africa guns for elusive Hong Kong Sevens rugby title. But first up the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. South Africa's former president, Khalima Muthante, has joined the private sector, NGOs, labor federations and opposition parties in pleading with President Jacob Zuma to take South Africa's national interests at heart and resign. His call in an interview with Bloomberg comes as rating agency Standard & Poor's downgraded South Africa to junk status following Zuma's removal of Praveen Gordon as finance minister. Mutlante says a breakdown in the ANC's democratic values under Zuma and a ruling by the Constitutional Court that he violated his oath of office shows that Zuma should not run the country. Mutlante also says the president didn't come across as someone who thought about what was in the national interest and that to observers there was a measure of irrationality to what he did. Meanwhile, constitutional law expert Shedrick Guto says the South African constitution provides two ways of removing President Jacob Zuma from office. Guto says Section 89 requires a two-thirds majority in the National Assembly, while Section 102 requires a simple majority of 50-plus votes. Both opposition parties, the DA and EFF, have submitted a motion of no confidence against Zuma following last week's controversial cabinet reshuffle. Guto says it's difficult to predict how things will turn out. President can be removed from office in two instances in the Constitution. One of Section 89, which deals with removal. And that requires two-thirds majority. Then we have Section 102, which really requires only 50% of members of parliament. I think it is easier to get the majority in Section 102 than Section 89 of removal. 
The epicenter of a strong earthquake which was felt in much of southern Africa on Monday was in a remote region of Botswana, the renowned Khalakhadi Game Reserve. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, the quake was registered at Mojabane, northwest of the capital, Khabarone. The earthquake led to considerable tremors that were felt in South Africa, Z- Zimbabwe, Zambia and Mozambique. There have been no reports of injuries or damages. 14-year-old Utsi Leshuma from South Africa's capital Pretoria is among scores of South Africans still reeling from shock following the tremor. I was um, dishing out dinner and then when my dad went to go check out at the garage, the same movement was taking place. The doors were shaking and roaring. The house also had a movement. My brother was upstairs and he came downstairs to report the same incident. He said he was um, shaking. The chair which he was sitting on was shaking. It was shocking. The Colombian government has declared a state of economic emergency in the southern town of Makoa. This after mudslides left more than 270 people dead and over 260 injured. Revisiting the scene of the disaster, President Jean Manuel Santos says 43 children are among the dead. Santos had flown into the disaster zone to oversee the relief effort. The mudslides occurred on Friday after heavy rains caused three rivers to overflow, spewing earth, rocks and tree debris from from over the area. Hopes of finding survivors are fading as some 200 people remain missing. And finally, the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has condemned Monday's bombing in the St. Petersburg metro in Russia and called for those responsible for the appalling act to be held accountable. He's also extended his deepest sympathy and condolences to the families of the victims and to the government and the people of the Russian Federation. According to media reports, 10 people were killed and dozens injured in the explosion. The incident is being investigated and local officials have not yet ruled it a terrorist act. That's the news headlines at 7.30, rather 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 807. Meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Qui 
Lidia Makande em Valeroa, aqui na Miriam Mulopo. Está na companhia do Serviço em Língua Portuguesa do Canal África, a voz de Renascença Africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika Mu África. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. The United States envoy has defended her country's posture at the United Nations amidst growing concern that the Trump administration poses a threat to the world body. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who assumed the presidency of the Security Council for the month of April, says her job is to show value in the UN for Americans after being asked to address growing concerns of possible major cuts in funding from her government, its threat to withdraw from the Human Rights Council in Geneva and rolling back progress on combating climate change. And as shown Bryce Peace reports, she also faces a standoff in the Security Council with Russia and China over her plans to include a debate on human rights this month. Ambassador Haley's been in the job just over two months as President Donald Trump's envoy, but there are growing concerns that his America First policy will hurt the UN's work, be it humanitarian or otherwise. I don't know what the perception is, what I would want the perception to be, and I think what this administration wants the perception to be is that we are moving forward with accountability. My job is to show the American people value in the UN, and through that, the way I think that's important is to change the culture of the UN, and that is to not be stale, to start talking about things we haven't always talked about, to look at certain peacekeeping reforms and see if we're, we could do more to help the people on the ground. There's no question that the Trump administration has caused some consternation in UN corridors, whether around budget cuts or threats to withdraw from the Human Rights Council it accuses of excessively focusing on Israel. President Trump's initial non-committal response to supporting a two-state solution in the Middle East, while undoing policies of his predecessor to slow global warming in favor of the U.S. coal industry, has placed diplomats and UN officials on edge. On climate change, I can tell you that um, the focus of this administration very much is we don't want to do anything that is going to hurt our businesses. We think that you can walk a fine balance between making sure that you're protecting the environment and also making sure that you are creating a strong economy that allows businesses to function. So we think that that balance can be can be had. And I think what you saw with the president and what he did was um, he felt like the previous administration went too far with the regulations and too far in what they were doing against businesses, and he's just trying to balance that back out. While China and Russia plan to block a move by Ambassador Haley to include a human rights debate in the Council, arguing that it's the purview of the General Assembly and the Human Rights Council in Geneva. Ambassador Haley believes that targeting human rights can prevent more serious security questions before the Security Council today. As president, I strongly believe that if you look at the conflicts we have in the world, they always go back to the human rights issues on the ground within those countries. And with the Security Council and the idea that they are looking for peace and security for the people around the world, it is incumbent on us to look at the conflicts and how human rights related to that conflict. The debate has yet to be scheduled and could go to a procedural vote in council where vetoes are suspended and nine votes required to move ahead. 
I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. The newly appointed South African Minister of Finance, Malusi Gigaba, says there's a number of positive milestones that South Africa has achieved and that it would not be prudent to think that changing a single individual could cause a ratings downgrade. Gigaba responded to questions about the latest developments in the country which saw former Finance Minister Pravin Gordon fired by President Jacob Zuma and the impact this could have on the country's sovereign rating. The minister was addressing the media at the South African Revenue Services offices in Pretoria where the outcome of the revenue collections for the 2016 to 2017 financial year were announced. Morafe Dabane has more. The minister, accompanied by SARS Commissioner Tom Moyani, Deputy Finance Minister Sfiso Butelezi and Director General at the Treasury, Lungisa Fuzile, expressed his concerns about the slow economic growth and its impact on revenue collection. He says given the current challenges, the South African Revenue Service has to be commended for collecting over a trillion rand and exceeding the revised estimates by 300,000 rand. The poor economic conditions clearly play their part in our revenue collection ability. The changes we have noticed in the economy mean shifts in the tax basis for various taxes. Changes in the economy may also lead to changes in the behavior of economic agents and taxpayers. Large shifts are likely to lead to significant changes in the short-run buoyancy ratios of various tax types, which can be estimated once the relevant economic aggregates have been measured. SARS has attained annual tax revenue collection growth rates since the the financial crisis of close to 10% per annum on average. This growth far exceeds the tax revenue collection growth rates attained by South Africa's peers. Asked about the latest cabinet reshuffle and the impact it might have on the decisions taken by ratings agencies when they review the country's rating, Gigaba said that the country has achieved a number of things over the past years and does not believe that one person being removed from his cabinet position could cause ratings agencies to downgrade the country. I don't know the intelligence report. I've not had sight of it. I can't comment on it. Um, where I stand, I get called and instructed as to changes that are going to take place. I don't ask questions. I simply comply with the um, instructions given to me. And I certainly think there is so much more going on in our country for, for us to believe that changing a single individual can cause a ratings downgrade. Meanwhile, the Commissioner of SARS, Tom Moyani, says for the second year in a row, the entity has been able to break the trillion rent mark when collecting revenue. It gives me great pleasure to announce that as at midnight, the 31st of March 2017, SARS has collected 1.144 trillion in line with the revised estimate as announced by the former Minister of Finance in the February 2017 budget speech. The preliminary results show SARS having exceeded the revised estimate by over 300,000 rents. Moyani says that this was achieved amid challenging economic conditions, which saw major sectors of the economy underperforming and employment declining. Today's revenue result is, a, is another South African and SARS success story.
and I'm proud as the commissioner of this great institution. Whilst marginally exceeding the target, make no mistake that this is still a success story. The revenue collection result is by no means a surprise. South Africa has built one of the most effective tax authorities in the developing world, and such has made huge strides over the past decade in ensuring compliance, whether by service, education, and enforcement. Economist, well, that was uh, Tom Moyani, the SARS uh, commissioner, ending that report by Murafe Dabane. As Standard & Poor's global ratings downgraded South Africa's sovereign credit rating to BB plus from triple B grade on Monday, saying the recent firing of its internationally respected finance minister posed a risk fiscal policy. The RAND fell by as much as 2% to the dollar in response to the news of the downgrade, while government bonds also weakened sharply. Standard & Poor's assigned South Africa a negative outlook, saying this reflected its view that political risks will remain high this year and that policy shifts are likely, which could undermine fiscal and growth outcomes more than we currently project. A downgrade to junk would increase South Africa's debt servicing costs seen at $11 billion in the 2016-2017 fiscal year. For a perspective on this, Sakina Kwamwendo spoke to economist and CEO of Pan-African Investment and Research Services, Dr. Iraj Abedian. There was, there has been over the past two years. We know it, uh, business knows it, labor knows it, government knows it very well, that and the, the, the country's creditworthiness was on the edge, literally, because our growth has been coming down, 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 and going to below half a percent. So when an economy uh, is on that track, there is definitely something to, to watch for, to be careful about, uh, because no government can sustain its uh, finances, and especially a government like South Africa, where on a monthly basis has to give out welfare to a third of its population. Uh, so when growth goes down so rapidly, tax revenues dry up, borrowing goes up, and that means your creditworthiness becomes more and more and more in doubt. So yes, it has been um, since 2012. And remember, this is not a sudden thing. We've had already two downgrades precisely because of this. What has been happening, however, since December 2015 was the Minister Gordon and business and government as a whole um, and labor have been going around the globe uh, convincing or trying to convince the capital markets that, yes, we have problems, but we are aware of it. Give us time. We'll sort it out. So this is nothing new. We've known that something has been in the pipeline. And just looking at um, our um, uh, borrowing and where that's likely to come from, our um, uh, standing as a member of BRICS, are we likely to see any relief from that front, from the BRICS bank? No, I mean, core BRICS. BRICS is Brazil. It's downgraded in financial trouble. Russia is in economic trouble. India has got its own. And China is in no way, in no position to replace and other sources of funding. BRICS is a symbolic, important, symbolic political statement. 
It's got no financial capability at a level that we need. Can it do 100 million, 50 million? Yes. But that's peanuts. That's not what the, 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 the economy needs. So we mustn't mislead or be naive that um, just because a group has been formed, they have the structure, the financial capability, or um, the uh, procedures to replace uh, capital markets globally. Russia, uh, Brazil, India, and China, all of them themselves are borrowers in the global capital markets. So is this situation likely to worsen in uh, the mid to long term? And how exactly will we be feeling the pinch of this downgrade? I think it's a very important question. This is not the end of the, uh, the, the problem that we have. And this is, in fact, the, the thinnest end of the wedge. If we don't manage it, we can get downgraded again and again, and to the point that we, we have no ability to borrow at all. Uh, and then we have to go on our knees at the IMF and other uh, multilateral institutions. So I think it is very, very calm and cool, uh, work with facts, not ignorance, and deal with technical issues that would save us from further downgrades and further pain. The consequences of not doing it in a calm and collected way we, is that we're going to push the economy into deep recession. We have examples such as Brazil, such as Mexico, such as Argentina. Argentina, after 30 years, hasn't recovered from it. So we are not talking about uh, slogans and, and rallies here. We're talking about very serious issues for the poor, particularly. Imagine, Sakina, if the government, as you reported earlier, uh, last week it instead of 600 million got 200 million. Let's say they go to the capital market and instead of a billion, get 10% of it. What does that mean? That means they come home, there is no money for pensions, there is no money for education, there is no money for paying salaries. Um, and so it goes. Inflation picks up. When the news comes up that the government cannot raise what it needs, immediately the currency responds. Immediately inflationary pressures goes up. And most importantly, confidence becomes less and less and less. Even those who have opportunities, they ask themselves, should I invest in this situation? And the answer becomes increasingly no, hold off. And that goes into a very, very um, deep and dangerous type of uh, snowballing, uh, or what they call it, the vicious cycle of negative expectations. Economist and CEO of Pan-African Investment and Research Services, Dr. Iraj Abedian, speaking to SAFM Sakina Kamwendo. Rebels loyal to South Sudan's former Vice President Riek Machar have freed 12 oil workers after holding them in captivity for nearly three weeks. Channel Africa's James Shimanyula has more. The 12 oil workers that were freed by rebel leader Riek Machar's fighters include two Indian and three Pakistani nationals, as well as local South Sudanese. The release of the oil workers was confirmed by one of Riek Machar's military field commanders, Dak Duke Bichok. 
Now they are released, they are now in Khartoum, so that those of Khartoum will hand them to their families. Explaining what transpired before the captives were freed, Riek Machar's field commander, Dak Dukubichok, said. Their country consult our chairman, they talk to our chairman. We didn't demand anything. We released them without any deal. Because we saw into that, that they are just workers, their country contacted us. Them, our chairman see into it. There's no need for those people to be kept. Flashing back to the 13th of last month, when the freed oil workers were abducted, Commander Bichok had this to say. But, uh, intensive fighting between our forces and the forces of the government. We took them to our headquarters and then captured the Pakistanian, engineer Pakistanian from Pakistan. During the fighting, we investigated them. After investigations with ICRC, they consult us. Then they say, okay, we want to see those people. These are mandate. We want to see, see them if they are alive. And then we allow them to go and see them. They see them. Then they contacted their families. They talked to their families so that their families will know that they are alive. The question that arises is whether or not Riek Machar fighters warned the oil workers in advance that they risked being abducted if they continued to work at the oil fields in the oil-rich Upper Nile region north of the capital Juba. Riek Machar's military commander, Bichok, has the answer. We warned them many times that you please evacuate the place. The government is uh, producing oil and he's getting money and he's buying the army so that he's killing, he's now killing our innocent people. And you know it very well. And everyone knows in this world that they are, they are buying arms and guns they are killing innocent people. And we told them so many times. We warned them. And we are still warning them uh, so that they leave the place, they leave the production place. And then they stop production. The rebels say their battles against the Juba government is justified as one of Riek Machar's military field commanders, Dak Dukubichok Assad. They are fighting for our right. We want oil to go for services of South Sudanese. We want to stop this oil not to work. If they have any power to protect the oil, let them do it. If they don't have, it is our right to do anything to stop the producing of oil in oil fields. Our people, half of them, are in, in refugee camps in, in Uganda, in Kenya, in Ethiopia, and in Sudan. Most of them are in, in unionist camps. They are not in their homes. They are displaced. They are being killed by the, the, the same government. People in South Sudan are not receiving their money. And this money is going to their pocket and going to buy the arms, kill our people. That was the voice of Dak Dukubichok, one of South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar's military field commanders. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. South African opposition parties believe filing another motion of no confidence in President Jacob Zuma is not a futile exercise. The Economic Freedom Fighters, the United Democratic Movement, Ingata Freedom Party, the Democratic Alliance and the UDM gathered at Marks Park in Emerentia to discuss President Jacob Zuma's recent cabinet reshuffle. President Zuma fired Pravin Gordon as the finance minister, as well as his deputy Mkibisi Jonas. Their portfolios have now been replaced with Malusi Gigaba as the finance minister and Sfiso Butelezi as deputy. Mbali Sibanyoni reports. 
Opposition parties have come together calling for President Jacob Zuma to step down from office. In a briefing in Johannesburg at Marks Park in Emerentia, the EFF, DA, COPE, UDM, IFP and a number of smaller parties convened. They have pledged their support to the EFF and the DA's request for National Assembly Speaker Balegambete to urgently convene a sitting of the National Assembly to take forward a motion of no confidence in the President. This comes after last week's cabinet reshuffle, which saw Finance Minister Pravin Gordon sacked. DA leader Musi Maimani says it's time for Zuma to vacate the union buildings. Opposition party leaders are united in their call for Zuma to go, and our belief is that the supremacy of the Constitution of Republic must always be upheld. And we maintain that the choice South Africans have to make is quite simple. Is it Zuma or South Africa? We maintain the two cannot coexist. The DA has previously filed motions of no confidence in the president and failed. The opposition parties say they are lobbying other members of the ANC to join them but would not divulge any names. EFF National Chairperson Dalim Bofu says the constitution allows for opposition parties to file this motion, especially in a time of crisis. We are now bringing a motion of confidence on the basis of a different reason, which is the crisis that the country has been plunged into now. Uh, And and that is why it is important to to lobby uh, around um, what Mr. Maiwamane was saying, which is it's, it's Zuma or South Africa. And that really is the issue now. Because if uh, members of the ANC uh, do not see that their own ANC stalwart, no less than Ahmed Katrada, uh, said that the president must step down. So it's not an anti-ANC thing. COPE leader Musiwa Lugota says it's time to change South Africa for the better and reverse the ruling party's mistake of putting Zuma as its leader. It's important for South Africans to realize that from the moment that uh, the ANC put uh, Zuma in the leadership of the country, he veered completely away from the constitution and his first act was to recall President Tabumbegi without any regard to the provisions of the national constitution. Since then, the whole track record of Zuma has been one of undermining the constitution. And the ANC has fully supported him at every step of the way. Today, We have a challenge to bring South Africa back to the constitutional route which we started on with President Mandela, followed with President Tabombegi. Opposition parties say they will also lead a protest to the union buildings next Wednesday and are calling on members of the public to join them. They also expected to hold a summit on a way forward for South Africa later this year. Ambali Sibanyoni in Johannesburg. It's 8.31 and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The headlines, South Africa's former president, Khalima Muthantej, joined the private sector, NGOs, labor federations and opposition parties in pleading with President Jacob Zuma to resign. 
The epicenter of a strong earthquake which was felt in much of southern Africa on Monday was in the region was in a remote region of Botswana, the renowned Khalakhadi Game Reserve, and Colombia has declared a state of economic emergency in the southern town of Mokoa following mudslides that left more than 270 people dead and over 260 injured. Those are the stories making headlines. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. There's been a dramatic increase in food insecurity around the world, the Food and Agriculture Organization said on Friday. FAO was one of the UN agencies contributing to a new report on food crisis along with the European Union, the United States Development Agency, USAID, and others. Around 108 million people were categorized as severely food insecure during 2016 compared with 80 million the previous year. The increase is largely due to the difficulties of producing and accessing food in conflict zones and the knock-on effect of higher food prices. Luca Russo, FAO Senior Strategic Advisor on Resilience, told Sandra Ferrari that of the 13 most serious food crises around the world, 10 were due to conflict. Food crises are becoming more prolonged and complex. The second message is about the driver of the food crisis. This year, the conflict has played a key role. Just to give you an, an idea, if we rank the, let's say, the 13 most severe crises in terms of number in the world, 10 out of 13 of these crises are due essentially, essentially to conflict. The third element is element which is known because everyone is talking about the famous four famine in four countries, that is uh, northeastern Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan and Yemen, and of course this report focuses a lot about these four crises. In fact, I would say that uh, the information that fed all the information around these, these four crises came from this global report. Now what makes this report an innovative tool in combating food insecurity in crisis areas? The first point is the word punishment. There are many numbers which are floating around, uh, around the number of people in food crisis and so on, different tools, different methods, different agencies. The strength of this report that is based on the consensus of all key agencies that work around food crisis. You have FAO, you have WFP, you have UNICEF, you have uh, FUSENET, and you have some very important regional body like IGAD, SEALS, and others. And therefore, I would say there is a consensus on the number, which is very important in terms of uh, decision making. 
The second element, which is this report, is essentially based on, on a tool, which is the IPC, the Integrated Food Security Face Classification, which was developed by FAO and now adopted by several agencies. So is based on one single tool, which allows you to compare the severity of the crisis across country. I think it's also important to say that this report gives numbers about the food crisis, but it also gives you an idea of the structural causes which led to the different crises, and this, in a way, helps you to link a bit the famous divide between the humanitarian and development work, because it looks at the short-term effect of the crisis, but it also looks at other structural cases. And then the fifth element, which I think is, is very important, is that uh, this report contains some likely scenario for 2017. This should help the international community to take early action of certain crises. Why hasn't this type of collaboration happened before? Well, two reasons. One is political reason, in the sense that the agency may have different interests and they use different tools. But this has been somehow addressed by the, um, the commitments which were made during the World Humanitarian Summit in May 2016 in Istanbul, in which everyone committed to, to joint and transparent analysis. And other ones, it was technical, in the sense that for quite some time, agencies could not agree on a standard tool to estimate crisis. Now there is a global consensus that IPC is the tool that is best fit to estimate this crisis. That was Luca Russo, FAO's Senior Strategic Advisor on Resilience, speaking to Sandra Ferrari. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. It's 8.37 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, the African Perspective. The United Nations World Food Programme, WFP, has pledged $253 million U.S. million to fund a five-year plan to end hunger in Zimbabwe, which is emerging from a devastating drought that left more than 4 million people in need of food aid last year. An El Nino-induced drought scorched crop and killed livestock in the southern African nation, forcing the government to launch an emergency appeal for food from donors. On Monday, the WFP representative in Zimbabwe, Eddie Rowe, said the agency would move away from short-term food handouts to technical assistance to improve food security in the country. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. The World Food Programme, WFP, together with the government of Zimbabwe on Monday in Harare, launched a $253 million U.S. dollar five-year plan aimed at ending hunger and boost nutrition while strengthening systems for reaching zero hunger in the country. WFP is the first United Nations agency to align its 2017 to 2021 corporate strategy with the Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, showing how it contributes and supports government to achieve them. The program will come up with an information portal accessible to the donor community aimed at improving transparency at a time when concerns have been raised over how donor funds are distributed mainly in the rural Zimbabwe. 
Currently, a million citizens in urban areas require aid, while least 4 million are in the hard-to-reach areas in the rural Zimbabwe in a country with a total of 13 million citizens. Following the land reform program in early 2000 aimed at redressing the land imbalance, Against the black majority in the country, Zimbabwe has been affected by perennial hunger affecting nearly 2 million citizens. However, concerns on accountability were raised resulting in the UNDP taking over the role of both resource mobilization as well as relief distribution through various UN agencies. According to WFP, donors will be able to see how much of their funds reach beneficiaries directly as well as how much is allocated to operating and implementing costs. A new plan will be able to link results to allocated resources and needs-based budget that has been developed and will allow every dollar to be tracked, said Ediro, WFP Zimbabwe representative and director. The five-year country strategic plan is budgeted at $253 million. And to be precise, year one, 2017, um, we've budgeted at $53 million. One of the innovations that um, we've brought into this transformational agenda is to be as transparent, as accountable to the government, as well as to our donors. Now, when we say you could track every dollar, as I speak, we are developing a public portal through which every donor and the government could access it and could see how we spend every contribution. The WFP boss added. Ladies and gentlemen, the World Food Program is undergoing a corporate transformation. The program is the first United Nations agency to align its new corporate strategy with the Sustainable Development Goals, showing how it contributes to and supports governments to achieve them. We are changing how we plan and implement and how we measure and report our impact and achievements so that governments and donors can clearly see how we are contributing to reaching zero hunger by 2030. Disasters that cause droughts and floods in Zimbabwe caused the WFP to implement a number of transformations. Meanwhile, the 2016-21 plan links with efforts to achieve the SDG by 2030. WFP head of program Nails Blouser said, None of the SDGs is working on its own. We need to invest in SDG 1 on poverty reduction. We need to invest in SDG 3 health and Education SDG 4 in parallel in order to achieve SDG 2. It's not that we have to invest or that we shall invest in silos in just one activity, but we need to understand the different interlinkages of these different activities. Ediro unpegged the new country strategic plan by WFP. At the country level, a single five-year country strategic plan, otherwise called the CSP, will replace previous humanitarian and development program categories. The CSP is a holistic approach to the root causes of hunger in a country where WFP operates. A new corporate results framework has been designed to measure our impact and effectiveness by clearly linking results 
to allocated resources. And finally, a needs-based budget has been developed and will allow every dollar to be tracked. The government and donors will be able to see how much of their funds reach beneficiaries directly as well as how much is allocated to operating and implementing costs. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Now let's go back in time to today in 1968. U.S. civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed while standing on a balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. That was U.S. civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who was shot and killed on this day in 1968. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. I'm Tabi Solohogu with an economics update. Good morning. South Africa's downgrade to junk status comes as no surprise. That's according to economist Irajabedian, who says Standard & Poor's announced its credit rating on Monday following President Jacob Zuma's cabinet reshuffle in which Finance Minister Pravin Gordon and his deputy Mkwebisi Jonas were fired. The move has split the ANC and angered its alliance partners, CSCCP and Kasatu, Abidian says that there is nothing sudden about Monday's downgrade. The country's creditworthiness was on the edge, literally, because our growth has been coming 
down, down, down and going to below half a percent. So when an economy uh, is on that track, there is definitely something to, to watch for, to be careful about. Meanwhile, the South African rand continues its decline in trade. The rand is currently trading at 13.77 to the US dollar. The agencies has cited political risk due to last week's cabinet reshuffle as well as economic growth concerns for its cut. Moody's has placed the government's BAA2 rating on a review for downgrade. The move is likely to further shake investor confidence, financial strategist Nerina Fisser. The cabinet reshuffle that we saw late last week, this particular action means that the basis for these credit ratings agencies giving us the benefit of the doubt is just no longer there, and therefore they can now only go on what our report card says in terms of the, of the credit rating downgrade. The economic implications are easy to predict, and I think social media and the newspapers and the media is covered with that in terms of the implications of um, potential increases in interest rates, the weakening of the currency, the inflationary impact that it will have. A British Columbia-based mining and metals company, First Quantum Minerals, has launched an offering of 1.6 million US dollars senior notes to refinance the company's existing debt securities due to due in 2019-20. Senior notes are debt securities or bonds that take precedence over other unsecured notes in the event of bankruptcy. The senior notes offered will be due in 2023 and 2025. This is contained in a statement posted on the Lusaka Securities Exchange and made available to the Times of Zambia in Lusaka. Rwandan beer, Bralira, says it's a pre-tax profit fell 68.32.32 million US dollars. So Bralira is Rwanda's oldest brewery with the rights to produce brands such as Amstel. It also produces brands, soft drinks such as Coca-Cola. Botswana's economy has expanded 0.1% quarter-on-quarter in the last three months of 2016 versus a revised 1.1% contraction in the third quarter. On a year-on-year basis, gross domestic product growth was 4.2% in Q4 after expanding by 6.9% in Q3. State Stats Botswana says the increase in growth in the quarter was due to expansions in the trade hotels, restaurants, uh, transport and communication sectors, while mining production continued to decline in the closure of the country's copper and nickel mines. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.77 in South Africa. It's at 10.43 in Botswana and at 9.63 in Zambia. 7.9 to the British pound, 9.3 to the euro. Gold, one to uh, two five five dollars A platinum, 9.56 dollars an ounce. Brand crude, 5.3 dollars, two zero cents a barrel. I'm Tabiso Lohoko. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, starting off with swimming news, the South African Youth and Senior National Aquatic Championships kicked off in style in Deben from the 3rd to the 8th of April. Cameroon for the bag qualified for the World Championships in Hungary late this year in July. He clogged 
1 minute 00.07 seconds in the semi-finals of the men's 100-meter breaststroke. A 2016 Rio Olympic silver medalist who is also juggling business since moving to Cape Town is happy with the qualification. No, just happy. I mean, every time you can qualify, you got to be happy. So um, it's been... been uh been, I mean, I, I, not, I wouldn't say it's been a tough year, but I mean, obviously it's a year of changes, so it's not, it's relieving to know that the changes are still working. Uh, I think there's a lot still to, a lot still to, to improve upon. Um, I sort of still over, overweight, uh, you know, still got a few more kilograms to lose. Fortunately, I'm not losing as uh, quickly as what I did when I was like 24. So, yeah, the, the wind's uh, 93 kilograms is uh, killing me a little bit still. <laughs> Look, I've, I've heard it's pretty bad, but... No, but it's, it's great. Uh, you know, it's new challenges. Um, you know, having Bobby and Andre, especially Bobby's here full time, so it's really great to have you know like a full time coach. Um, unfortunately, the guys did go to Italy for like the last three weeks, so I couldn't join them. Obviously, with the new business, I can't travel as much. So, um, and then on its own, also is a new challenge, which has been. Rio Olympics double silver medalist Chadley Claw also posted a qualification time for the World Champions in the 4 by 100 meter freestyle relay. Leclerc started the race and clogged 49.03 seconds. He will also attempt to also qualify in the 200 meter freestyle, 200 meter butterfly and 100 meter butterfly races. Yeah, it was good. I was happy. Jeez. Uh, yeah, you know, I wanted to go 48 again. I think uh, after the 48 in Celebosh, you know, that was a really good song for me. But this was a lot better. You know, I was out a little bit slower. Um, so it's a whole second quicker than I was out back in Celebosh, which is a good sign. Um, you know, without the fin, it's a, it's a good time for me, you know, because I was 49, 49.3 and I went early in Durban. So I'm, you know, 0.8 off going, yeah, so about 0.9 quicker than I was in Durban, you know, with the, with the same pool and everything. So I'm just, yeah, it's, it's a good start for me. And yeah, I'm just happy to, happy to be back racing, like I said, you know. I'm not sure yet, eh? I mean, look, I'm 203, 200 fly, 100 fly are the main ones. Uh, 200 fly first, then 203, then 100 fly. If you want to put it in that order, in that order, yeah, so... The Springbok Sevens team have won a gold medal at the Commonwealth Games and an Olympic bronze medalist. They've won the World Series as well as tournaments all over the world. But one prize that has eluded them thus far is the Hong Kong Sevens title. They finished runners-up in 2008 and 2009. Now, Neil Powell's men, however, have had a dream season winning four out of six tournaments and finishing second in the other two. And the coach says they will treat Hong Kong like any other tournament. Just to be honest, the turnaround was so so short between the two tournaments and the fact that we had so many injuries and guys that we had to manage. Uh, I got asked the question two days ago and I realized, okay, we had Hong Kong actually. So um, never thought about it and then probably the best way to go into Hong Kong to not make the big tournament bigger than it, than it really is. It's just the same tournament, same amount of points that you will get whether you win, lose, second, third, whatever. So, um, yeah, we haven't spoke about it, but... Um, I think when you arrive there, there's always a bit of a prestige around the tournament. And, and I know teams like Fiji, New Zealand uh, put a lot of energy and focus in, in Hong Kong. And they, their performance is about 10% up on any other performance in any other tournament on the, on the world circuit. That's just what news. It's our. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, South Africa's opposition pushed for motion of no confidence in President Jacob Zuma. U.S. envoy defends her country's posture at the United Nations and the U.N. Food Agency launches plan to end hunger in Zimbabwe. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumazora Magaza, technical producer Maria Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Lokua Kanza with a song titled Dipano. I'm gonna 